Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac, coming live from the PPA Hive. We're buzzing through your speakers like non-native bees and your non-native clover. What? It's five seconds into this episode, and I'm almost done. <sighs> Got a bee leave in the process, Elliot. Yeah, and here we go again. Welcome back, everybody. It's part two of the Honeybee Basics episode. Episodes? How many, how many have we split this into? It's beyond your understanding. Sure. Let's go with that lovely pun. Thank you, Andy. Okay. So last week we talked about bees and the fundamentals around how they operate, uh, what a hive actually is, how they age, what they eat, all of that timing, uh, maturity. So I guess we're going to pick it up from there. Yeah. And today we're going to dig in just a little bit deeper on that. We started to talk about how they divide their workload, and it's really basically stratified. And of course, we're not going to drone on about this. Make it stop. Nobody learns this way. We're talking about the worker bees. So they start working as nurse bees. They graduate to house bees and spend the rest of their time as foragers. It's the nurse bees job to feed other worker bees when they first emerge from their cells as adults. Nurse bees usually begin working to clean the cells by removing the cocoons and the excrement of recently hatched bees. On about the third day, worker bees will begin nursing or feeding brood. They'll do this for about a week or two, depending on conditions. So basically, they learn how to be nurse bees by just existing. By being, you mean? I don't mean that, no. So I, I think I do, actually. <laughs> So bees learn by being fed, and then they do it in the next generation while they're still growing up? Yeah, it's like basically the typical family household. Your four-year-old feeds your newborn. It's the thing we do, you know, babies feeding babies. Yeah, that took me a second because I was like, babies feeding babies? To whom? Listen, you're not Jeff Lawton here. We're not talking about actually eating babies. You know, we, we don't listen to Black Phillip around these parts. But anyways, these baby nurse bees feed the royal jelly to newly hatched larvae. The royal jelly, uh, we talked about quickly last episode, is secreted from glands in their heads. Did you just make a reference to a movie with Black Phillip there? I did. I've seen Black Phillip. My sheep, one of my sheep, is actually named Black Phyllis in honor of Black Phillip. I think that was the movie Witch. Andy doesn't couldn't tell you what the plot was. He just saw a goat. What the new- saw a goat and blacked everything else out. Listen, I didn't even know the movie's name. All right, I just knew there was Black Phillip with the giant ass horns. It's wild. It's you're a wild man. I don't understand how you operate, but I I like it, man. Feral. Continue. All right. So by the time they're about ten days old, the brood food glands will start to dry up on the worker bees, and eight wax glands on the underside of the worker's abdomen will start to secrete wax, pushing the worker into the house bee stage. She can then begin to work on building comb and repairing the damaged wax. Basically, they do all of this according to their age ability. And according to the hive's need. So it's like Marxist puberty. Muberty. Thanks, I hate it. Totally didn't need that one. You did. Everyone needed that one. It's around this age when they also begin to start taking their orientation flights around the hive to learn its basic location and kind of what the exterior conditions are like. They continue taking these flights occasionally until they move into their actual foraging stage. Sometimes you just got to stretch your wings. Yeah, while still in the hive at this time, but still capable of some basic flying, these workers receive pollen and nectar from foragers and deposit it in the comb cells. 
Okay. So again, just to reiterate, they're learning by working alongside bees doing their next age stage. Yeah, exactly. So they, in this process or the stage, they learn to basically what's called stretching the nectar uh, that they receive with their mouth parts to reduce the moisture content until the nectar is ripe honey. And then they cap the cell. In addition, these house bees process the pollen into bee bread by adding small amounts of nectar and enzymes to the pollen dropped in cells by foragers. This weed is totally hidden because I just pictured little bee chefs and little bee bakers just getting They're to work. Bakers. Make, yeah, you said bee bread. Isn't that, don't you bake bread? You don't cook bread. I guess. All right, fine. You win that one. They're, they're actually more like line cooks. There's really no chefs in a beehive. Decentralized cooking. Only line cooks and sauciers. Hell yeah. So when the daily foraging flights begin on about the 21st day, the wax glands of the worker bee begin to atrophy and the worker moves squarely into the forager role. Again, they change jobs with their bodily evolution, how they mature sort of dictates their next role. Exactly. So from this point forward, the worker spends its days flying out into the world to locate, gather, and bring back all things honeybee colonies need to prosper. Water, pollen, nectar, and resins to make propolis. They'll continue to forage until their bodies give out at around six weeks old. Propolis. Expand. Yeah, so propolis is basically like bee glue. So bee glue is like they just shove it in things that they don't want to loosen up. In many hives, they'll actually cover the interior side of the exterior of the hive almost entirely in propolis if they can. So it's different than beeswax? Correct. The wax is just the, the comb itself. It's all made out of the wax. And then they cover it with like this propolis, like a lacquer, sort of. So they don't cover the wax in the propolis. They cover like gaps. So like you think about it like if they're living in like a log hive, like out in like nature. Like if a tree is hollowed out and dead, they're going to move into it, but there's going to be little cracks here and there that they want to fill in because they don't want air flowing into it. Uh, and that's where the propolis comes in. It just is there to fill in those spaces. Excellent. So it's like bee mortar. I got it. Yeah, it's border. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my head. Um, okay, Good. so back to what... Andy, this is just getting out of control. At this it's, point. It's, in, it's insane. It's a, it's a curse on the entire world. When did Matt show up? I thought I could stand by. I thought I could just let it happen. It's just like, okay. it's too many. You see uh, what I've been dealing with? It's like God coming out of nowhere, just like, hello, I'm here. God. All right. We're getting back on track here. So all in right. the insect world, with all of the timing, like, is this a long time or a short time? Uh, I feel like bees live longer than most insects. That would be correct. Bees are like basically your Toyota Camrys of insects. Didn't you have a Camry as a first car? Yeah, it didn't end great for that car, but, you know, in its defense, it still ran even after it was totaled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? Nothing. I, I, farmers can't drive. Got something to say? I remember your first car, right? So I wouldn't be talking smack over there, Mr. Nissan Sentra. Yeah, that thing died on its own. I didn't need any help. <laughs> Maybe don't own a Nissan. Like, if you want something that's going to run, like, buy something good. Speaking of working, let's talk about those bees and the stratification of their work. All this points to the fact that stratification of work by age makes a lot of sense, even maybe for people whose bodies don't change as much as bees. The problem is, I think, with people is that we don't view these relationships as equal. The jobs people get when they're older 
are either further up in hierarchy or people are viewed as failures or weird for not moving on and flipping burgers for an extended period of time or whatever it is. Yeah, the goal of changing jobs isn't just because you're better fitted or you're better suited for a different job because of your knowledge and age and experience or whatever, but rather because you have to in order to make more money. And it creates a dynamic of oppression between different people and different, whatever you want to call it, job specifications. I think there's a lot we can really learn about this understanding, specifically around like this concept of mentorship that we see in bees and uh, hives and how that could translate into a much more equitable and compassionate society. So what you're saying is bees are more compassionate than people? Well, no, but bees are, or beehives rather, are more compassionate than like the alienation of our current economic model. Good, because I was going to say with that whole stinger thing, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of compassion there. It's it's a giant fuck you. <laughs> I mean, they die, so it's fuck you to them too. Yeah, that's even that's even more powerful because it's last words. They fucking mean it. Uh, yeah, getting back to the hive though, what we've discussed is basically the general life cycle for the bees in the hive. And speaking of those hives, there's a lot of variations on what hives look like, and what works best for where you live is based on where you live and your skill set and a bunch of other things. Now, most people are going to use Langstroth hives, uh, and I personally do use some Langstroth hives, as well as some modified top bar hives. The Langstroths are the ones folks usually think of when they think of beekeeping. It's those square stacked boxes that are like three feet tall. The, like I said, the Langstroth are by far the most common. The second most common is the top bar hive, which I mentioned a moment ago. And there are some overlaps with Langstroth hives, and we're going to cover each of those in separate episodes, both their pros and cons, and a bit about where they actually came from in a few episodes. Yeah, so I think I see the long hives that look like troughs with the squares that you pull out more often in like warmer climates. Yeah, top bars are definitely more common in the south, as I think they tend to dissipate heat a little bit better that way. The other theoretical benefit is that the hives are more representative of how they would be found in the wild, and the frames can be easier to access because of the height. Skep hives are probably the third most common, and they compose of less than 1% of all hives, and I don't think they're used on any commercial size for a number of reasons. They're usually made from straw and are basically just domed baskets. These are some of the earliest forms of hives recorded in history and traditionally were designed to be destroyed, killing the hive in order to collect the honey and comb, although this is actually starting to be somewhat challenged in academic spaces. And again, we'll talk a little bit about this in further detail in another episode. So did they not know they could use a bee colony in a hive for more than one year? Or was it just like a war against the bees? Like they knew if they harvested, they might get stung. So they just genocided like everything. So that was the assumption for a long time that people were too stupid to be responsible beekeepers and that bees were so abundant so they didn't care about destroying their homes. But in reality, they were probably harvesting after the bees moved out, despite this, you know, savage narrative that has existed throughout history. Oh, it's my turn. You ready for this one? The wild popular narrative by HBO, Game of Drones. Touche. So from the technical- I threw up a little in my mouth. <laughs> I, I'm very proud of you, Elliot. You're growing up. I can see the dad bod coming in. Now, from the technical perspective, another thing to consider is protective clothing. And typically for most people, that means like a veil, a bee suit, and gloves. 
the veil is considered the most important piece of clothing a beekeeper can wear because like you know who wants to get stung in the face it's also the same thing that makes you kind of look like the michelin man you know stings on the hands and body can be tolerated as long as you're not allergic but stings to the face not great how many times have you been stung by my own bees uh, I think only twice, to be honest, and both of them were my own fault. First time I was leaning over in the suit to pick up a frame, the bee was like on my suit and like, I don't know if it was just like chilling there or what, but um, when I leaned over, I just did like a little folding crunch of him in my stomach. So that was cool. That was tons of fun. Yeah, I bet they didn't like that. No, he didn't like that because he was dead. And this, like, I didn't think he stung me. It was more like I just squished him into stinging me. Like, you know, in the, like, I don't know, like those movies where, like, the girl grabs the guy and, like, shoves herself onto his sword to die because he won't do it. That was me and the bee. Um, God. You you rushed upon a sting. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that. That's a line and, in the emo song, I promise. I know it's out there. <laughs> it's got to be. And the second time I was rushing and it was the middle of summer, I was wearing, like, low cut shoes and I didn't really like protect my ankles and I got stung right in the ankle. So generally speaking, the point I'm trying to make is you're going to get stung, but more often than not, it's because you're being careless. Like most things, if you're thorough and thoughtful, you're going to be fine. But when it's like a hundred degrees out and you're covered in basically like head to toe overalls and like super thick gloves, you tend to be trying to go as fast as you can and things are going to happen. Yeah, it's not as bad as I thought it would have been. Uh, I guess how many years? How many years have you been keeping bees? I'm actually rounding out year five, so by no means am I like a bee expert. But still, I think the point is really that a sting every couple of years isn't that bad, especially if you're not allergic. Like if you are, then that's another story. But you still have to be careful, and it depends on how you're getting into the bees, and it depends how often you're getting into the hives, and there's a number of factors that play into that. And we're going to be talking again more about that in the future as we talk about different management methods around bees. Okay, so I see the yes and no answer has evolved a little bit. And I, I it's think, season three, baby. I, I think that I'm a counts. modern man. There's nothing modern about you but your, <laughs> but your glasses. My research is modern. Now, the bee suits, uh, like I said, are basically like white overalls made of sturdy fabric that are also like go like full Michelin man, like down to your wrists, down to your ankles. And then the veil is usually attached at the top, like with a zipper. And it's great. They work great, especially if you get one that's not a cheap brand. The fabric on a cheap one, you're going to be like, there's no way this is protecting me. This is garbage. If it's heavy and you're getting sweaty, like you're safe. So be sweaty. That is the lesson today. Be sweaty. All of the suits usually have like elastic cuffs on the arms and legs to seal out bees. But you can also like tuck them into socks and you also have gloves on so you can tuck them in there. And there's a bunch of different options. They generally are basically all the same thing, just like whether or not they're all connected as one piece or like you buy the pants separately or whatever. Okay, so as the resident smoker here, I'm going to bring it up. I know that smoking bees can sort of keep them docile. Do you have any sort of bellows or any Do I smoke my like bees, that? Elliot? Yeah, do I do smoke you, them up? Is yes. that what you're trying to do ask me? Do you get me? your bees high as shit? Do, yeah. I, do I get my dankest bud and then smoke the shit out of them and then forget what I'm doing? How and else like, do you infuse the honey? Pick them flowers? How else do you infuse the honey? Infused, yes. That's, that's what we're doing. Honestly, though, no, I, I don't actually spend a lot of time smoking them because, like, there's a lot of reasons. But uh, speaking of smoking bees... 
we've got some unbelievable products to sell you right away. I swear to God, I'm I'm not going to make it. Are you thirsty? No? Do you want to be? Try bean curd. With twice the chewiness of a sponge and half the flavor of dough. What could be better? Nothing. Take your high-protein block of cardboard and make a great meal incredibly mediocre. Say it with me now. Herd your thirst with curd. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Because it's bean curd. Learn more about the power of bean curd at poorproles.com. Stay thirsty, friends. Welcome back. We're doing it live. <laughs> According to Elliot. Uh, welcome back. We are beyond excited to keep this conversation going. I don't know how it happens, but you can't just keep cutting me off like that. I didn't do anything. Take it up with Dom. Sorry, Dom. Now we've talked a lot about the bees themselves and about your suit. And like you mentioned, there's some other stuff you'll need. Uh, for tools, you probably want to have a handful of tools for working with your bees. The first being a hive tool. The second being Elliot, a.k.a. a smoker. And third being a bee brush. Hive tool is used for like prying and scraping and leveraging tasks around in a beehive. It's basically like a five-in-one, but with a little bit of a different shape. Oh, yeah. The five-in-one. The classic five-in-one. I, I don't think we're talking about the same five-in-one. You know, it's the five-in-ones, the classic man staple. Shampoo, body wash, also conditioner, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth. It's part of a balanced, healthy breakfast. This morning it proposed to a girlfriend. She said, yeah. You're still here? Cross, man. Always. I, I didn't hear anything. How, how did he? Okay. Always, Andy. I didn't hear that. For our hive tool... The, the scraping end is sharpened like a chisel to fit between the frames and the hive and dislodge any that are stuck together from that propolis. And, like, I know you're thinking, how strong can something from a bee be? Hard. I'm telling you, it's really hard. You'll need it, but you could probably make do with, like, a flathead screwdriver if you really needed to. They're, like, 10 bucks, so it's definitely worth the investment. It can be used to scrape off burr comb from the top and the bottom of the frame and to destroy swarm cells if needed. Again, we'll talk about those in the future. The prying end of the tool is good for lifting off covers, prying up frames, and all that good stuff. That sounds like a useful piece of kit and a decent multi-tool. Yeah, so let's talk about the smoker. You're going to refer to me like I don't have a name? <laughs> I'm bringing back this podcast 200 years. So I'll be honest, uh, the longer I keep bees, and especially if they're Italian bees, which I'm trying to get away from, but for now, I don't really use a smoker, but definitely for a new keeper, it's definitely helpful. It's generally used to subdue bees when you're opening a hive. When the bees smell the smoke, they engorge themselves on honey to prepare for an emergency flight, unaware of when they might be able to eat again. And the scent of the smoke helps also mask the bees' alarm pheromones. Makes sense. So smoking trees for me makes me docile, and I also eat up most of my food stores when that happens. So the bees basically do the same thing. And then the smell covers up their panic. Yeah. It'd be so funny if it was like, that was also the human response to just like a fire emergency. It's just like, there's a fire downstairs. This is on fire. Time to make a pizza. I am fucking starving. <laughs> I mean, when I smell smoke, I grab some more stuff. It's just a habit. Habits die hard. 
So yeah, the bees basically go into emergency mode and you're not the emergency. Now you don't need to use one to open the hive. And like I said, I don't really try to. The big negative of not of using it rather is that because the bees stuff themselves with honey, they'll usually use like up to a week's worth of honey production. Now, if you live someplace with shorter summer seasons, like I personally don't want to give up a week of honey production if I don't have to. So what if you smoke them out with actual weed? I mean, do you think they'd have worse munchies than like normally, like more than a week's worth of food? I mean, in the words of Ricky LaFleur, no one wants to admit they ate nine cans of ravioli, <laughs> but they ravioli. did. Corey and Trevor, smokes for the bees. Let's go. <laughs> Two smokes. Let's go. Smokes. Uh, and lastly, you'll need a bee brush. But honestly, like any clean brush would probably be fine. So it's not like the same one you used to like sweep the floor or about the back of your car or whatever? Yeah, no. When you're handling your honey, I don't think you want to use that same brush. Just life hack. And um, when you're harvesting the honey, you want to get the bees off. You don't want them like coming into your house with you. So, um, you know, you want to brush them off. And when you're brushing them, you want to try to like brush them the same way you might brush like any animal, which is like away from their head. Obviously, that means making sure your bees are lined up single file. Exactly. It's uh, it's not as cut and dry as it might seem. And lastly, and I guess most importantly, you have to decide to get your bees, which you can get as swarms or they're sold as packages. You can uh, pick up your package through your local beekeepers association or you can just order them online and pick them up at the post office i've always wondered how people get new shipments of bees you can just put bees in the mail and ship them through the post office yeah and i mean they don't love it i can tell you that much i mean there's got to be something about like vibrating packages where like <laughs> is there a game like do you think this is a dildo or is it bees <laughs> <laughs> It's Italian either way. Uh, all they have to- <laughs> expensive. You know, all they have to do is really just be nice, and they'll be fine. What if they're allergic, though? EpiPens for everybody. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. This is America. Anyways, uh, Italian bees are the most popular strain in the United States. They're like a light yellowish or brown color with like alternating stripes of brown and black on the abdomen. The the lighter color of the Italian queen makes it really easy to find in the hive. So what makes them Italian bees? Are they is it really cuz they're from Italy or like It it's their love of pasta. Just real carbonara fiends. With egg yolks, none of that cream bullshit. No. None of that. And you don't be putting that white sugar in there. Honey. Only honey. But seriously, they're from Italy. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in, you know, a later episode. Of course we will. But for now, uh, it's important to just know that there are basically three major strains. Uh, the Italians, the Caucasians, and the Carniolans. And while the honeybees that come from the U.S. at this point have basically kind of blended these strains to an extent, usually it's pretty clear which genetics are dominant in your hive after a little bit of experience. Yeah, and just to simplify the rest of the episode, we're just going to say bees. You know what? I don't just say your dogs are just dogs when you're like, oh, it's this breed. I do. Nobody cares. Can't tell the difference between a chihuahua and a golden retriever. No, it's a dog. Dog. Chad moment. Just dog. Could have said doggo. Doggo. For beekeepers, many strains have been even further selected for specific characteristics such as productivity, gentleness, mite or disease resistance, and a number of other things. So in order to acquire a particular strain of bee, you only need to purchase a queen since the queen controls the genetics of the entire colony. 
And again, it's a lot more complex than that. We're going to be doing separate episodes on both bee genetics and queens, but for now, that's all we're going to get into it. But like I said, Italian bees, far and wide, the most common. So it really does sound like a, like a bee mafia sort of over here. Ready? I'm going to do an impression. I'll make you a hive you can't refuse. That's a good impression. Oh, yeah. I did not see that coming. Right on. Yeah. Much like my people, the Italian bees start brood rearing early in the spring and continue through the late fall, which results in a large population and a considerable amount of nectar in a short period of time. Okay, so what's the nectar in this euphemism? Titty milk, Elliot. Titty milk. Feel better about that? I kind of do. <laughs> Good. Now, despite these great traits, there are some downsides to them. Don't say anything. They often require more maintenance because of the fact they require more honey stores than other strains. They also exhibit weaker orientation, that is, finding their way back home, resulting in more frequent drifting from one colony to another. Don't say anything, Elliot. Not only does this mean that they don't come home sometimes, but also they are pretty good at transferring disease and mites. They also, and I'm going to regret saying this, exhibit a strong inclination, we'll say, to robbing, which obviously is bad for the other hives, but also can aid in the spread of disease. Yeah, so we got to the part of the episode where I knew this already. We're not talking about Italian people, Elliot. Oh, I knew that. Now, Caucasian bees are the gentlest of all honeybees. Did the Caucasian bees write that for the news or like... They're actually dark spin? to black in color with gray bands on the abdomen. That's fucking ironic. Right? Nature is funny. Nature is funny, especially when we name nature. So they tend to construct a burr comb and use large amounts of propolis to fasten combs and to try to reduce the size of the entrance to the hive. Because they propolize excessively, they're not considered suitable for producing honey to be sold while still in the comb. Because if you have a bunch of really hard stuff on it, it's not going to be fun to get it out. Caucasians are also inclined to drifting and robbing, but not to excessive swarming. That's perfect. Whoever named them did a great fucking job because they like to reap all the rewards and benefits, like not do any of the work. Oh, wait till you find out in the next episode. Now, Caucasians normally don't reach full strength before midsummer. And they tend to conserve their honey stores better than the Italians do. They also forage at somewhat lower temperatures and under less favorable climactic conditions than do Italian bees, and are reported to show some resistance to European fowl brood. Caucasians are available, but not super common. I'm not going to lie, you are sounding more and more like an Italian honeybee to me now that you describe it. You know, there are worse things, I'm not going to lie. The last of the three major strains of bees are carniones, also known as carnies, which can be identified by their dark coloring with brown bands on their abdomen. <laughs> okay, carnies sound weird. I kind of love it. Down? You're down a clown? I mean, no. No, Andy. <laughs> uh, so these uh, ladies overwinter as small clusters, but they're incredibly good at increasing rapidly in the spring after the first pollen. They increase so rapidly that their major disadvantage is excessive swarming, which is basically when the hive feels too crowded and half the hive leaves. Due to their small overwintering cluster size, they're really economical in their food consumption, even under those unfavorable climactic conditions like where I live, and they overwinter pretty well. They're generally pretty good bees by most metrics, but despite this, while they are available, they're not super common. Some of the stock is listed as New World Carnies, considered by some beekeepers to be like the better carny strain. 
Okay, so is it like a carny blood feud or is it like a pure carny blood line? Either way, I love it, but <laughs> what makes them better? And we need to uh, call up HBO and let them know about this show that they need to start working <laughs> on. Like, move over True Bloods. Here comes like... Yeah, Game of Drones. It writes itself. We don't have to Game do of shit. Drones. We don't have to do shit. Carney. We just got to put our names on it, bro. <laughs> yeah, the carny, <laughs> carny blood feud. So... These guys, uh, they're the new car- new world carnies, we'll call them, because it's their name. They're considered less likely to swarm. That's basically the, the difference. As this miniseries on bees goes into further depth, we'll discuss why that may or may not be actually a good thing. Now, even though these are the three most common strains, there are a few others. And even of these three, Italians make up the bulk of most beekeeping. Uh, that definitely sounds mob-related. I know there's a mob joke in there somewhere, but it also sounds like the New World carnies sort of bring like a New World Order to bee shit. So that's cool. They're the, they're the ICP of bees. So, uh, the ICB. The down a clown Boom. joke. The down a clown joke really was foreshadowing. I didn't know you had it, it in It was. <laughs> Can't write this shit. It writes uh, itself, bro. We it, just put our names on it. It writes itself. Let's call HBO. Let them know. The, the down a clown posse is here. So there are a few other more rare strains that are worth at least mentioning. If you're in a very cool climate, Buckfast bees are really worth considering. They're from southwestern England and are available, we'll say, in the United States. Hard to find, but available. They're more resistant to tracheal mites than other bee strains and also better suited to cool climates. I'd really imagine that they would do well in the northwestern U.S., but I have no experience there. But that just makes a lot of sense to me. Another one you might hear a lot about is Russian bees. Now, Russian bees have been exposed to varroa mites in their native homeland over a long period of time and have developed a natural resistance to them. We haven't talked about mites, but they're kind of like the Darth Vader of bees. I don't know. I've never seen Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I think I broke Matt. Oh, no. I, I really haven't seen Star Trek, so let's not talk about it. Are you, I don't want to. You're, you're serious? Oh, I'm absolutely serious. No, no I'm like. I, I've seen like half of one. All right. Different. So you're sa- you're saying Star Trek and you're talking about Star Wars. So you really don't have any idea what you're talking about. No, I don't. Shut. Take, Darth- a, micro- take a microphone from this guy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Nobody's going to believe a word you say if you continue. Good. I don't want them to. Then there's no accountability if I uh, screw all, up. All credibility gone. Good. So you no- destroyed this podcast. And one fell swoop. Yeah, oh, we're gonna one sentence it took the, it down. The reviews are gonna get flamed, dude. Oh, it's yeah. gonna be ugly. It's gonna be worth it. Hey, if you wanna like comment on this, like make an iTunes account, leave a review, like <laughs> about how Nick Offerman <laughs> is actually Darth Andy. Vader in Game of Thrones. Is Nick Offerman in Game of Thrones? Oh my god. Go back <laughs> to the episode. Please go back to the episode. The what episode? Oh, the content we're talking about, that, yeah. Yeah, it's getting uh, yeah, so bad. <laughs> the, okay, so Russian bees, not related to the golden showers of Donald Trump's Russia days. So they've been exposed to mites, which we really haven't talked about. So they've got some like good natural resistance to them. Now, the USDA actually imported some selected Russian queens into the United States, which means basically very select lines of Russian bees were able to be brought into the United States these Russian colonies were created and evaluated in isolation before being released to commercial breeders to be propagated. You can now buy Russian queens from Russian queen breeders. So all of that sounds pretty 
extensive. Can you just plug and play different queens of species into beehives and everything's cool and they just mix genetics like that? Well, sort of. It brings up an important question of what exactly a package of bees really is. It is not, despite what you might expect, like a small hive. Beekeepers that like sell packages simply like take frames of adult workers out of their hives and shake them into like the package that it goes in the mail to. And um, that's like it. Like they just go through and like harvest bees from wherever. Damn. And breaking up the family. So they may or may not. Like the bees may or not be related to one another. They could be from like multiple hives. If, you know, they're walking around and doing this to make money, I'm assuming they're from multiple hives doing this a bunch. And they diverse, like in, they range in ages and like, it's completely random. Yeah. Yeah. So most packages are like three pounds. That means they basically will collect bees from multiple hives. A young mated queen unfamiliar to these worker bees is placed separately in a small queen cage because queens are reared separately from the hive. And that cage is placed inside the package with the workers so they can become comfortable with basically her scent and her existence on their journey. The queen cage is attached to the shipping crate at the top near the feeder. And she's given a couple worker bees in the cage to care for her because she can't care for herself. The queen cages have their own additional food source of sugar candy. And over the course of like a week or so, the worker bees basically learn the smell of the queen until they forget that they never were with her. So this is pretty crazy. They're even colonizing bees now. Who? The whites? Sure. The whats? (laughs) I guess. They're they're selling them. They're colonizing and selling them. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, that fits. You know, it really raises an important question. Is there anything we can't colonize? And I'm not going to answer it because I'm afraid to suggest anything to add fuel to the fire. And you know what else colonizers hate? The products in these ads. So if you hate colonizers, go support whatever's in these ads, especially if they come from Raytheon. Do you like having a garden? Yeah. Do you not like getting dirty? Yeah. Great. Neither do we. Introducing Do Nothing Landscaping. This sounds like just what I'm looking for. Can you take care of my pesky lawn? Of course! Our lawn care package includes not mowing your lawn and not pulling weeds. Do you seed and fertilize too? Nope. Spray Roundup? Absolutely not. So what do you do? Fuck all! We do absolutely nothing. Wow, I'm convinced. How do I get started? Pay us a $50 monthly subscription fee and we'll not mow your lawn, we'll not rake up leaves, and if you sign up today, you'll be enrolled in our super VIP privacy program. That means you'll never fucking see us ever again. So stop doing something and start doing nothing today. Well, I'm broke now from all those Raytheon seed bombs. Don't you have a country to go pillage to refill the coffers? Just hives. Don't worry. I'm an evolved white man. I only pillage hives. Now, if you don't want to uh, do the bee package thing, another option is called a nuke, which is short for a nucleus colony, which is probably closer to what people would expect for starting a new hive. It has like three or so frames of workers and brood, some honey and pollen and a queen. Uh, it's basically the, the early stages of a hive, but they're often like a lot more expensive. Is it worth the difference and price it can be but not not necessarily now your last option requires a little bit more comfort on the part of the beekeeper and that's capturing a swarm which is a hanging cluster of bees there can be as many as twenty-five thousand bees in a swarm so like it's a sight to see if you have the opportunity to capture a swarm it can be a really cheap way to get a lot of bees 
and obviously it's like free and hopefully they're really healthy and actually like related to one another. So when your carnies swarm or if they get robbed by some Italians, they, they got to leave, but you could still capture them. And then after that, you've got two hives. So you've got the original hive and then you've got the swarm you've captured. Yeah. If you find them. So when a swarm leaves the nest, it doesn't really fly very far. So if you know how to identify when a hive is swarmed by the way the bees are flying around the hive, you've got a, like a short window to go find them really quickly. And you'll know you found the hive, the the swarm when you see this like foot long oval that's just like buzzing and hanging from a tree. This is basically a temporary stop while they look for a new home. From there, like 20 to 50 scalpies will go locate like a cavity or someone's attic or whatever. And that might take like a few hours to several days. Hollow trees are the most common new nesting site, though they'll settle, like I said, in a wall or a porch or a shed or whatever works. The swarm might fly up to a mile to its final nesting site. They don't generally go super far. Swarming creates a really vulnerable time in the life of the honeybee, so they don't want to like risk themselves for as long as, you know, to go 5, 10, 20 miles further away. A swarm will also starve if it doesn't move quickly because, you know, they don't have any honey stores. And uh, there's the real risk of the queen being lost or captured by predators during flight. So I'm assuming they don't often survive long in the wild if no one, you know, catches domesticated bees or if they don't, I don't know, they can't run. Like you said, they, they don't run far. Yeah. And we're going to, again, talk about that in the next few weeks. But for now, I think we've kind of covered the bare bones of bees and beekeeping, at least, you know, enough for, for one day. We'll be coming back next week with a, a little bit of a deeper discussion on some of the things we didn't cover, and then we'll be doing some fairly deep dives into the stuff you care about, like, what is colony collapse disorder? Do we really need to use chemicals? Are drones really that useless? Jesus, man. When will Raytheon make portable drones that are gender inclusive? Jesus, man. Listen, Ellie, I get paid the big bucks to ask the questions everyone else is too afraid to ask. I don't think that's it. Also, you don't get paid big bucks. I've seen our Patreon. <laughs> We're on an installment plan for this microphone. Don't play with me. That's because we don't have that Raytheon money yet, Elliot. But after this, we're going to be swimming in mics. Speaking of swimming, let's talk about different types of honeybees. Swimming? Yeah, man. They're like the minnows of the sky. I hate you and this podcast. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks everyone for listening to today's episode on bees. And Matt's still Where here. Where does that keep coming from? Behind you. Get it? Or... No. All right.